Happy Labor Day, y'all. <laughs> Can you tell this Labor Day weekend? Oh, I, I pray that we, as we start that that we not let the size and shape and and the location and all the technical difficulties or whatever else might be plaguing us or consuming our thoughts right now as we gather together, no matter how big or how small, that those will not hinder us from why we are here. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And it doesn't matter whether it's two. It doesn't matter whether we don't have PowerPoint. It doesn't matter whether we're in some strange room next to a smelly pool or what. It doesn't matter, right? We're here together as a church. We're here together as a body of Christ, of those who have been, who have been redeemed by the one we come to praise. That's why we're here. <clears throat> Today's been a rough day. I'm not going to lie to you. We didn't expect to be here. And then from there on, it's just kind of been a snowball. So, you know, pray for me as I get ready to deliver God's word to you. Um, you know, we're continuing this morning in our sermon series on the core values of our church. That which drives us. That which defines us. That which we want to be all about. That, that we not only want to encompass our lives, that give us direction, give us focus as a church, but that which we wish to pass on. These are our priorities, our gospel priorities, the things that we are all about. They're the essence of everything that we do. This morning, we're going to look at that, the one core value that is really the most difficult. The one that is the most challenging. We decided just to go ahead and smack everybody right upside the face with it. You know, just why not, you know, we're not going to save it for the last one and kind of beat you up. We're just like, we'll go ahead and get our punches in early. And then from there on, it can, can seem like a, a nice smooth ride. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, last week we talked about transformation. And uh, I don't recall that being all too easy. I mean, transformation, really? I mean, think about how difficult that is. Well, this is a lot harder. Compared to, the, compared to transformation, this is a lot harder. Far more difficult than holding to truth. Far more fear-ridden than proclamation. Far more challenging than trying to develop community or to raise a family. And far more sacrificial than worship is the core value of love. It's far more difficult. Now, you might be sitting here and you're confused. You're like, no way, man. I know how to love. I know what love's about, man. I, I love pizza. I love football. I love to sleep. I love my family. I love my dog. I mean, I fall in and out of love all the time. I mean, just ask my 14 previous girlfriends. Love is easy, man. What are you talking about? And I would say, yeah, to that. Worldly love is easy. Loving the things of the world is easy. Loving those things that we seek uh, to satisfy the inner longings of our being, our natural being, our, our own proclivities, those things are easy. But biblical love is not easy. Biblical love is difficult. It's the hardest thing that we could ever do. Biblical love demands everything and guarantees no earthly satisfaction. None. Biblical love says, lay down your life. And you ask, well, well, what do I get? Biblical love says, you get Christ. Now lay down your life. And if we're honest, that's not always very comforting. That's not always easy. You see, we love ourselves. We're always seeking to satisfy ourselves, and we don't want to wait for anything. 
We don't want to wait to see the fruit of our love. We don't want to have to hope for something that's out there, that's in the future, that might not return to us. We make love a commodity to be bartered for. We turn love into this transaction. It's like, I'll love you if you love me in a way that I prefer or a way that I'm content with. I'll sacrifice for you as long as you're willing to sacrifice for me. I'll give you what you want just so long as you give me what I want. We make it a commodity to be traded. It's not about me loving you. It's about me loving me and using you to satisfy my desires to meet my longings and my love for me. That's the essence of natural love. This love that we think is is so easy. The underlying truth of love you know, that, that is natural to all of us is that we love ourselves. And that's why it's the hardest core value for us to deal with. Because this love for self is entrenched within us. It is ingrained within us. We love ourselves. We seek our own good. We seek our own satisfaction without having to think. We, we, we go through life just doing this day after day. And we don't even realize how, how ingrained, how entrenched, and how pervasive this idea of self-love is. But biblical love is completely different. And that's why it's an essential core value for us to talk about today. And in fact, you know, it, uh, all others, even truth, even, every one of our core values depend upon this one. So go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 28 through 34. That's page 848 in the Bibles in the chairs if you need one. Mark 12, 28-34. Um, now, I'm going to say this right up front. If you've ever been to church for any length of time, you have heard a sermon on this passage. This is the most preached passage in all the world, for all of history. I can guarantee you, because the conservatives like to preach it, the liberals like to preach it, it doesn't matter, because it kind of applies to everybody, right? And so... I don't want you to kind of look at the title, look at the content, and just tune out, all right? Because I'm, what I'm preaching on today is far more than altruism. It's far more than agape love, okay? Biblical love is never separated from truth. It is directed first to God, but by nature overflows to others without partiality. Love finds its fulfillment in Christ. That's the direction that we're headed, okay? So... Let's look at the text. Mark 12, 28-34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, 
You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much better than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered him wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The first thing we see from this passage is that love is never separated from truth. It's never separated from truth. Okay? This exchange takes place shortly before Jesus is arrested, he's beaten, and then he is crucified. From the moment that Jesus had stepped foot in Jerusalem, he had been pestered continually by the religious leaders. They'd been asking him question after question after question. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were asking questions, not because they really wanted to know, not because they wanted to follow him, but because they wanted to trick him. They thought, if I can just get him to stumble on some essential truth from the law, then I could prove without a doubt that this man is a fraud. That was their goal, okay? All their questions were directed in this way. But every time, Jesus astonished them with his response. He ended up making them look like fools. And they didn't like it. You see, because he challenged, because of the the authoritative way that he answered these questions, he challenged their perceived positions of authority. These positions of authority that they didn't want to give up. And so as a result, they turned around and they decided, you know what, we're going to take care of this guy. We're going to find some way to arrest him and have him put to death. So this encounter between this scribe, and a scribe is a lawyer of these religious leaders. This guy's job was to know the law, to help them to rightly interpret the law, and then apply the law to whatever given situation it is. That's this guy's job. So this this encounter between Jesus and this scribe happens in the middle of this extended, heated debate between the religious leaders who want to put Jesus to death and Jesus. Okay? But unlike these religious leaders who were holding to a form of the truth so that they could use it and that they could extort it to seek their own gain, to seek their own advantage, this one man, he comes to Jesus openly, honestly, and sincerely. He, he desires to seek the truth that Jesus is trying to tell him. He, he, he comes honestly and vulnerably. And we have to think about who this man is. This man has spent his life pouring over the Word of God. He knew, he, he would have so many laws memorized Not just the law from Scripture, but also the Jewish commands that they had followed that that coincided with the tradition of their religion. And so he wants to know the truth. And seeing that Jesus had been answering these religious leaders well, he comes to him with this question. He sees that Jesus' authoritative statements were consistent with all of Scripture that this man has been pouring over his entire life. He comes looking for authoritative truth. Okay? I want you to catch the weight of that. He's coming looking for authoritative truth. This man who spends his life seeking to know truth through God's law is now coming to Jesus looking for the ultimate truth. Genuinely and sincerely. The scribe has studied so much and yet he comes to Jesus to know the truth. 
<clears throat> and so he asks, which commandment is the most important of all? What he's asking here is, what is, what is most central? What's most fundamental? What is the essential premise of the law on which all individual commands depend? What commandment supersedes everything? And it is incumbent upon all humanity, not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles alike, for all humanity. What must we follow? He's asking Jesus, who taught with authority, not as the scribes, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 22, what is the basic, foundational, elementary, ultimate truth that we should live by. And Jesus answered, you were made to love God, and you were made to love your neighbor as yourself. The deepest, primary, supreme purpose of life is to love God and your neighbor. And that's for all of humanity. Now I can almost picture this man's response. I can just see him standing there. And he's, he's just thinking deeply. He's unrolling scrolls in his mind. And he's cross-referencing so many passages. He's like, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And then suddenly the light comes on and he realizes, whoa, Jesus is right. And so he says in verse 32 and 33, you are right, teacher. You are right. For you have truly said, truly said, that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe, this master of the commands of the law, said to Jesus, Truly, you are right. Your words are truth. I want you to sit in this for a minute, okay? Let's not gloss over this. This is significance. This has bearing on all of our lives. He's saying to Jesus, this man who studied the law, this man who is, is the authority in his day and age, comes to Jesus and he says, you know what? You're right. You're right. Your words are truth. You know, for the most part, we like commands, now, we don't always like to follow them, but we like commands. Because when we see a rule, we can either choose to obey it or we can choose to deny it. But either way, we have this perception that we are in authority. We are the masters of our own destiny. The captains, as it were, of our souls. And so we think, hey, I'm cool with rules. I'm cool with commands. Truth is a different matter. Because truth is authoritative. We don't have an option when it comes to truth. We realize that if we deny truth, then there are consequences for that. Rejection of truth is far more than just failing to obey commands. It is a rejection of whatever is in authority over us. This is a big deal. So as a result, people are divided into two groups. There are those who love the truth, and that there are those that hate the truth. There's no middle ground. There's no way to live kind of towing the line. You either love the truth or you hate the truth. These religious leaders who were debating with Jesus, they were okay with commands. They were good with commands, but they hated the truth. <clears throat> they thought to themselves, you know what, if I do this and 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 this, then I can please God. 
But all the while, I'm still living for myself. I'm still loving myself. It's still about me. And so they take the commands of Scripture, they take the truth and they distort it enough to make it about exalting them so that they might look pious, so that they might be honored, so that they might be respected as authorities. All the while, they're still loving themselves. You know, we all too often treat worship this way. We come here, we might, we might be in the church every time the doors are open. We might sit there and listen to preaching, we might sing our songs, we might have been baptized, we might have taken the Lord's Supper, done all these things, all these ritualistic practices, but we've twisted it to make it about me. We've twisted it. This is about my worship. This is about what I'm offering to God. This is my way of turning it so that God would please me and be honored in my sacrifice. All the while, we're hating truth. We're still living as if we're the authority. As if this is our world and we are God. We can do all this. We can obey commands. We can come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We can be a part of community groups. We can be a part of life transformation groups. It doesn't matter. And still hate the truth. And Jesus is not going to let us off on it. But this man realized that the truth Jesus was demanding took far more than choosing to obey commands for purity and sacrifice and offering. It actually required all. It required everything. And so, love is not separated from truth. Love is not just some fleeting emotion or general cognitive appreciation, both of which feed my love for myself. All our labors of love, all our affections, all our affinities, all our efforts run through this truth, by this truth, for this truth, that you are made to love God and others. Your neighbor as yourself. You, your love is not about you. It's about God and it's about others. That's biblical love. That's the truth of biblical love. But we need to unpack each of these a little bit further. So the second point is that our love is directed first to God. You know, God created us to have relationship with Him. Not because He needed us. But we were created so that our ultimate joy, our ultimate hope, our ultimate fulfillment, our soul's satisfaction might be satisfied, satiated, found in Him. To have a relationship with Him is to know Him. To know Him is to love Him. To love Him is to ascribe worth to Him or to worship Him. To worship Him is to proclaim the glory of His name. That's what it means to have a relationship with God. Jesus here is doing more than simply quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, like a good Jew. He is calling us back, just like God did in Deuteronomy 6, to our original purpose. That we are to trust in the one true and living God and to love Him with our whole being. Not just with our lips. Not just with our, when our emotions happen to be elevated. Not just with our actions, or not just when we think we have a right thought about God. Everything, absolutely everything, is about, about us. 
is to glorify God. We are to worship Him with our affections. We are to worship Him with our intellect. We are to worship Him with our wills, being fully obedient to God to the point that we exhaust ourselves, that we expend all our strength upon Him. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is why we were created, according to Isaiah 43.7, for God's glory. We were made completely and entirely for the glory of God. But though we were created in this way, it didn't take us long to rebel against it. It only took two chapters in, in Genesis to get there. We don't know how long that was, but it wasn't long. And if we look carefully at our own lives, we know it didn't take us long either. I can give you example after example of my kids. My daughter's one, and she's a sinner. I can tell you that. She's rebelled against this idea. <clears throat> we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and chose instead to worship and serve the created rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Sometimes worshiping images from nature or false gods that we created, ultimately we long to worship a God that we can control, a God who we can love, a God that is ultimately made in our image. In our image, instead of us being made in God's image, we try to worship a God made in ours. We rebelled against God and tried to live as if we are God. So God gave us over to our own rebellion to continue to, to in our sin as enemies under His just wrath, worshiping ourselves rather than the one to whom all glory belongs. When we do this, we worship false gods. We do this when we worship our stomachs or we worship our entertainment or our emotions or our success or our possessions or even other people. We do this when we worship no gods at all. And if that didn't catch you, this will. The bulk of us in this room are guilty of one other thing. We'll catch it in this. We worship a form of the one true and living God. We worship a form, just like these religious leaders of the day. We take enough of the truth to distort it, and we make it about us. We worship a, fo <clears throat> a form of the truth. And we do it to exalt ourselves and our piety for our good works, so that people might look and they see our acts of worship and they think much of us. They do it in the things that we say. All the while, our hearts are far from God. We love this idea of God. We love enough scriptural truth that we love the, the things that we can participate in, but we don't love God. This is what the religious leaders of the day were doing. They were outwardly trying to keep the law but in a way that brought them glory or made them feel good about themselves for what they had accomplished. This is a God that they could control. You see that? It's a God they could control. <clears throat> that God rewarded their self-love. <clears throat> and even though they were close to the truth, just like we can be so close to the truth, they didn't worship the one true God in a way that was pleasing to Him because they didn't love Him. Alright? Friends, you know, we do the same thing. 
We gather here. We can sing songs. We be in church all the time. We can tithe. We can give our offerings. We can outwardly submit to the law. We can put on this plastic facade of a self-righteous life. You know, we could we could even elevate our emotions in certain ways, but never love God. Never truly serve God. Never live my life for God. And in that, we are sinning against God. True worship is better than whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. It cannot be expressed in mere obedience to commands. It requires our whole being. All the activities that we might do mean nothing without a true love for God. But then Jesus says even more. He says, third, love by nature overflows to others without partiality. True biblical love overflows to others without partiality. Jesus' answer to the scribe's question doesn't end with love the Lord your God with your whole being. He adds another just for good, or, and it, nor does he add another just for good measure. Just saying, hey, you know, you wanted one, I'll give you two. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. Two for one special. No, the reality is that these two Old Testament passages that Jesus quotes, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19, 18, complete one thought that answers this man's question. Though the priority is given to the first, it is inseparable from the second. You cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and not love your neighbor as yourself. And you cannot love your neighbor as yourself and not love the Lord your God with your whole being. It's absolutely impossible to separate the two. This is why Jesus answers the man in verse 31, though he quoted two Old Testament imperatives, there is no other commandment greater than these. There is no one single greater commandment than these together. These two ideas complete the one greatest commandment of God. If you read Matthew's account on this passage in Matthew 22, he he adds this. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. All that God has spoken to his people throughout history, all the Old Testament is fulfilled in doing both. So we cannot love God in isolation. We must do so in community. In Luke's account of this passage, he records the scribe asking a second question. Well then, who is my neighbor? Okay, if you're going to ask me to love my neighbors myself, surely you've got to put some limits on this. Surely this has got to be the people of God. He's thinking about Leviticus 19.18, and Leviticus 19.18 was directed to the people of God. But Jesus takes it even further. He said, no, it's not just to the people of God, it's to all people. He gives the example of the Good Samaritan. And what the Good Samaritan has done. And then he also, he takes the question, he turns it on his head. It's not about who is my neighbor, it's about how I can be a good neighbor. It's about what I need to do to go out of my way to be a good neighbor. And it's not just to be kind to those who happen alongside me. That I'm to go out of my way to be intentional, to love others as myself. And it shows no partiality whatsoever. We're now ready at this point to give a biblical definition of love. Okay? We've, we've unpacked enough that we can, 
we can begin to take a look at what biblical love is. It ought to be clear by now that biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love does not seek its own benefit. Biblical love is self-sacrificing. It seeks the good of others without expectation. Okay? So a good definition of biblical love is an impartial, self-sacrificing commitment to act for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of response, reception, or reciprocity. Okay? It's impartial. You don't favor some people over another. Okay? It is self-sacrificing. It's not about what it's going to gain you, but it's all about giving yourself freely to others. It's a commitment to act. Okay? It's not a feeling. It's not just a rosy disposition. It's a commitment to move forward, to give demonstrations of that love, not just to have a fond, fond thinking or thought about whatever that is. It's for God's glory. It's for the good of others. And it happens regardless of not, whether or not they respond, whether or not they receive it, and certainly whether or not they ever give anything back. It is being resolved to take action that seeks the glory of God and the good of others without bias, without any expectation of return. Biblical love is giving 100% all the time, no strings attached. That's biblical love. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, right? This is not just a wedding passage. I mean, I know that we hear it in weddings all the time, and we can start to think, okay, this is really between man and woman. But no, this was written to the church about how that they should interact with one another. And he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Truth, there's a big one. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. He goes on to say that our worship our acts of faith, our gifts of the Spirit are meaningless without love. Friends, if we're only surrounding ourselves with people that benefit us in some way, we're not loving. And if we're not loving, according to 1 John 4, 19-20, we prove that we don't know the love of God. This is all the more true when we're among the church. If you only surround yourselves by those that you just have a natural affinity with or who are just like you or who benefit you personally in some way, then you're not loving as Christ loved. Christ didn't do that in any way. And if we look around the room, even now, we can be careful to see that that's happening. We all can be guilty of that, even in this setting. That we only associate with a few rather than all. We only love the few. We only really have an affection for the few rather than the all, rather than the whole. If that's the way you are, you're showing partiality. Love is not relegated to people in the same stage of life as me or have the same interests as me or who flatter me or make me feel good about myself. It includes all people. No matter the color, no matter the money in the bank, no matter the age, no matter the style, no matter the life ambitions, no matter the ability or disability, no matter how righteous they are or how holy they are or whether or not they are struggling in sins, that you are to bear with them, okay? Because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is loving without partiality. 
This is what it's about. It's not about being around people that are just like me, that are easy to love, because I love me. It's about being around people that I don't naturally have a connection with. And in that, I display the love of Christ. The love that here's a holy man who hangs out with sinners, with tax collectors and prostitutes. Because that's what we all are. The gospel is displayed in this kind of love. Anything less, we have to be careful that it's not self-love. And let's face it, we're all guilty. I am sitting here, standing here, telling you I'm guilty of this. None of us loves God and loves others as we should. We love ourselves. But within this passage, there is a promise. Love finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This scribe understood the truth of Scripture. He, he realized what Jesus quoted. He affirmed it. He realized that this was indeed the summary of the entire law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament, Jesus has just unpacked in two verses. And he affirms that. He agrees with what Jesus has said. He said, yeah, you're right. This is truth. And not only that, but he adds some more Scripture of his own. He adds this Hey, yeah, you're right. This is better than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. There he's alluding to passages, a lot of Old Testament passages, but passages like 1 Samuel 15:22 or Hosea 6:6 or Micah 6, 6 through 8. He's he's adding to that because he recognizes and affirms that Jesus has spoken rightly and truly and that his authoritative words are consistent a consistent summary of all of scripture. But in verse 34 it says this, When Jesus saw that he had answered him wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. What do you mean that he's not far from the kingdom of God? Why is he not of the kingdom of God? I mean, he understands what Jesus says. He just affirmed Jesus' teaching. He just said, yeah, you're right. That is authoritative. That is true. I absolutely agree with that. That is a concise summary of all the Old Testament scriptures. I affirm that. I believe that. I commend that in front of all these people that I work with. And yet Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not there yet. So what's missing? What's he lacking? He just affirmed Jesus' teaching. He's missing Jesus. He hasn't followed Jesus. Guys, this is a this is a scary, scary thing for all of us. When we think about it. We can sit here and we can affirm the truth of Scripture. We can be nodding our head emphatically and taking rigorous notes at this point and saying, yep. Yep, yep, I agree with all that. I agree with all that. I agree with all that. But are we following Christ? It's not enough, according to Jesus, to affirm his teaching. You have got to follow him. The one, the one thing he's lacking is to get up and follow Christ. Jesus is saying the only way for you to come far enough 
to enter the kingdom of God is to follow me, to receive me, to come to me. No matter how much you affirm what I say, without me, you cannot get there. It's impossible. You cannot love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. Only I can. And if you want that, which you should want that, because God wants that, you must come to me. Friends, Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience, the life that you and I cannot. He is the only person to have ever loved the Lord their God with all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength, to love his neighbor as himself. And he took that life, that perfect life of obedience, and he laid it down. He sacrificed himself on the cross as a substitute for sin, paying the ransom that that sin deserved, paying the ransom to God. And after three days, he rose again to the grave, from the grave, was seated at the right hand of God, and as, and, and, and as Brett pointed out earlier, promises to give the Holy Spirit to all who would repent of their sin and believe in him. He's saying, if you know me, if you love me, if you follow me, and you, you, you believe in me, I will give you my spirit, allowing you the ability to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, not because of anything that you can do, because of what I have done. And that changes you. That changes everything. And the Holy Spirit indwells within you, conforming you, transforming you, changing you to be more and more and more like the only one who could ever do that. That is the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we truly recognize our inability to love God and our inability to love ourselves and the reality of this truth claim that we must do that, We ought to fall on our knees and thank God for Christ. That ought to cause us to love Christ with all our soul, with all our being, with all our strength, everything about us, our intellects, our affections, everything about us should be drawn to loving Christ and the overflow of that will automatically be to love our neighbor as herself. It's only when we receive Christ that we can truly love God and others. If you read in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12, through 12, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Friends, the aim of our charge, the purpose behind this core value of Redeemer is that love is love that issues from a pure heart and a sincere con- or a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in this last time for your sake, who through him are, are believers, <clears throat> excuse me, through whom, who, I'm sorry, through who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Friends, we... As we receive the love of God in Christ, we are then able to turn and love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because love finds its true fulfillment, its only fulfillment, in Jesus Christ. But we can only turn, we can only do this as we turn from the love that we have for ourselves and receive the love of Christ. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Gospel-Centered Life, wrote, Loving self is the cruelest of all slaveries. It promises everything but delivers nothing. Loving God and others is the most liberating of all freedoms. It promises everything and gives us more than we could ever imagine. Imagine your life in Christ, freed from the slavery of self-love so that you can love God and others, so that you might daily commit to act impartially and self-sacrificially for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of response, of reception, or reciprocity. That promise is yours, but only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God, we thank you that in him we have the freedom, we have the ability now to love you and to love others. God, we pray asking forgiveness for our love of self, It's love that fuels us, that motivates us, and can even distort our religious activities to exalt ourselves, to seek our own gain, rather than to love you and to be an expression of your love to others. God, I pray for those in this room today that if they haven't ever received the love of Christ, that they might recognize their great need that they might see that we were made to love you and to love others as ourselves. That they might recognize the truth and realize that they don't cut it. But that's the standard that you're going to hold us to. So I pray that they would turn from their love of themselves and seek to love you through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, even more of us have played the religious game for a long time. Maybe we grew up in church and we've heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, but we never really recognize that even in our religion, 
we could still be exalting and loving ourselves rather than you. That we've been seeking to barter with you to gain eternal life or to gain forgiveness, but all the while we hate the truth. We hate you. God, I pray that our eyes would be open to behold the wonder of the love of Christ that is open freely to us. And if we've truly received it, if we've truly rested in it, how could we not love Him? Him who knew no sin, but gave Himself to be this substitute for our sin. How could that not change us? God, we pray that you would help us to love. Not for our own benefit, but for your glory and the good of others. Not just in word, not just in emotion or just in appreciation, but an active, engaging love that has the ability to reflect the love that you have shown us through Christ. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.